Yes, so this is the third. Um, the first one was called happiness. Second one was beauty. And this is naturalness. And the final one next week is trust. And uh, these four words are themes that I've identified as I look at the three Pure Land Sutras and write about them. There are three, these are the four, four of the themes that uh, I've noticed running through them. Happiness, obviously, because um, the Pure Land is uh, Sukhavati, which means abounding in happiness. Beauty is an obvious one, too, because uh, Sukhavati is extremely beautiful. Uh, naturalness is not so obvious, so I need to tell you how I got there, really. So the second of the three sutras is called the Longer Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra. And it is quite long. It's well over 100 pages. And it begins with the Buddha uh, sitting uh, on Vulture's Peak uh, near Rajagriha. And he's surrounded by, depending on whether it's the Sanskrit version of the text or the Chinese, either 12,000 bodhisattvas or 32,000 bodhisattvas. Anyway, a lot. And you can't help wondering how they get that many people on Vulture's Peak, but that's to think very literally, and Mahayana Sutras are not literal. So he's surrounded by many, many beings, thousands of bodhisattvas, uh, many thousands of um, arahants as well, monks, gods, all sorts of beings around him. And uh, Ananda is close to him as well. Ananda, his close friend uh, and cousin and um, redactor, of the Buddha's teachings, because Ananda is the man who uh, had apparently an incredible memory, who could remember absolutely everything the Buddha said. So it's important that Ananda's there, because he, he is just about to hear the Buddha give this great long teaching, lasting over 100 pages when it was written down, and Ananda had to be there to remember it, to tell everybody else. So Anyway, Ananda turns to the Buddha, and he says, well, you look really golden. Your skin is shining radiant with gold. Could it be that you're dwelling in the abode of the Buddhas? And the Buddha says, wow, how did you get that? Did the Devas tell you? Did Buddhas tell you? Or was it your own reflection? And Ananda said, well, it was my own reflection, actually. And the Buddha really congratulated him on it. He said, well done, well done. I am, in fact, dwelling in the abode of the Buddhas. And this acts as a trigger for the Buddha to tell Ananda and all those beings present all about the mythic history of Sukhavati. So the last couple of weeks I've spoken about Sukhavati, I've described it to you. That the place abounding in happiness, it's got um, jewel trees and lotuses the size of cartwheels and golden sand and the whole floor is golden and you heard it all last week, didn't you? So this beautiful place, how did it come to be? So the Buddha now tells us how it came to be. And he says, in the past, Ananda, long ago, inconceivably many innumerable countless eons upon countless eons ago 
a Tathagata, an Arhat, a perfectly awakened Buddha by the name of Dipankara arose in the world. This takes a bit of unpacking, this little sentence here. So, inconceivably, many innumerable countless aeons upon countless aeons ago. So an aeon, remember last week I said what an aeon is? It's a kalpa, Indian word kalpa. And do you remember how long a kalpa is? You had this... That's it. So you get this, this great big rock, a mile, a cube mile rock, right? A rock in a cube shape, a mile across, etc. And every 100 years, um, a goddess comes down from the heavens and strokes it with a piece of Benares silk. And they always say Benares silk. I think that's because it's the softest kind of silk you can buy. Once with a piece of Benares silk, then goes off up, up to where she abides and then comes back 100 years later and does the same. And she keeps doing that every 100 years. And how long do you think it would take for that rock to wear away? That is one aeon. So here we have inconceivably many innumerable countless aeons upon countless aeons ago. So that's a very, very long time ago. You can't imagine it. And you're not supposed to imagine it, really. It's supposed to put you into the achintya mode of being. The um, achintya means unthinkable, uh, unimaginable. You just can't imagine So there was this Buddha before this Buddha called Dipankara. And before him, inconceivably, many immovable countless aeons, etc., etc., there was another Buddha called Pratapavat. And before him, another one. And he lists 81 Buddhas going way, way back. Each one, innumerable countless aeons between them. So, you know, it's ridiculous. Utterly, it's... uh, it's a, so long ago that you, you, you just bounce out of time, really. And that's the point of it, really. We're now talking fairy tales. We're outside of time. Funny enough, I was looking in the dictionary um, for faith a little while ago. I thought, let's see what the dictionary says about it. I've got this big two-volume 1965 illustrated dictionary. Somebody bought me for my birthday a long time ago. I thought I'd look it up. And just before faith... The word is fairy tale. Isn't that interesting? And that made me smile because so many people think of faith as being a great big fairy tale. And this is what I'm about to tell you. You could say a great big fairy tale. So go way back, 81 Buddhas in the past, and then you get to this Buddha called Lokeshvara Rajira. Lokeshvara Raja, which means sovereign king of the world. And he had a disciple a monk called Dharmakara. And this disciple took the Bodhisattva vow. Now, what does that mean? So, um, by the time of the Mahayana, and this text is a Mahayana text, uh, there, were, there seemed to be two routes that you could take as a Buddhist. You could either take the route of the Arhat, or the Arahat, the Arahant. You could either practice now to become enlightened now, in this life, under the tutelage of the Buddha, or you could, as it were, put that off, not do that, and instead follow what the Buddha's done, which is to practice for aeons and aeons, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, until eventually you get reborn in a world system that has no Buddha, and you 
as it were, rediscover the Dharma for everybody there in your final life, and you become the Buddha of that world system. So then you've got these two religious ideals, really. You've got the ideal of simply become an arahant now, under the Buddha, or holding that off and become doing what the Buddha did and becoming a Buddha. So that's the background to this. So Dharmakara decides he doesn't want to gain enlightenment under Lokeshwara Raja, but he wants to become a Buddha in the distant future. So he takes what's called the Bodhisattva vow, the Pranidhana. Um, and the Bodhisattva vow basically vows that you will become a Buddha and for the sake of all beings sometime in the future. And many, many lifetimes ahead, you'll be a bodhisattva, practicing, 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 perfecting yourself until you become a Buddha. So he makes uh, not just one vow, he makes a number of vows. Depending on the version of the sutra, there are seven versions of this sutra. And some of them have him making 24 vows, others more than that. And there's one of them that has him taking 48 vows. I'm not going to go into all those now. I mean, in fact, we're not really going to, going to go into the vows at all, except that I just want to point out the strange grammatical structure of them. I'll read the third one. Blessed one. So he is now, Dharmaka is talking to Lokeshara, and blessed one is a translation of Bhagavat, so it's a term of um, respect. He's talking to Lokeshara, he's taking these vows in front of Lokeshwar and he says, Blessed one, may I not attain unsurpassed perfect awakening if, when I have attained awakening, any of the living beings who are born in my Buddha field are not of a single colour, the colour of gold. So I chose that vow out of all of them because it's fairly short and also because it's to do with the colour of gold again. So there's a connection between this vow and how the sutra began with Anadha noticing that the Buddha is the colour of gold. And the reason for that is because in Mahayana sutras, gold is considered to be the most fabulous thing, the most valuable thing in the whole world. And um, it's the colour that all Buddhas are in sutras. So you know, you get this idea that Amitabha is red <coughs> and Virochana is white, and Ratnasambhava is yellow. Well, actually, when you go back to the Mahayana Sutras, they're all the colour of gold. And that's interesting because this is actually a statue of Amitabha here. And as you see, he is the colour of gold. So, yes, so this vow, what it really means is that uh, the beings in his Buddha field will all be the colour of gold. He wants everyone to be the colour of gold, meaning he wants everyone to be awakened. But did you notice a strange grammatical structure? May I not attain unsurpassed perfect civil awakening if, when I have attained awakening, such and such does not happen. What a strange grammatical structure that is. It's a bit like saying, say I'm going to go to, hol- go to Italy for holiday. It's a bit like saying, when I get to Italy, if the sun isn't shining, may I not go to Italy. It doesn't really make sense, does it? Well, let's say I was training to be a doctor. When I am a doctor, if I don't cure people of illness, may I not become a doctor? So that's the structure of the vows. So why is it in that strange structure? Some people, I suppose, think it's just the way it was written. It doesn't really matter very much. 
But I suppose because I'm writing a book about this, I was thinking about it. And I do actually think uh, there's a reason for that structure. So after he's made these vows, a little while later, the Buddha's talking. Ananda asks another question. Ananda says, so um, where is he now, this Dharmakara? Has he become a Buddha yet? Um, Or is he still striving to become a Buddha? And if he has become a Buddha, is he still alive or has he gone into Parinirvana? Has he died? And if he's still alive, where is he? So good questions. And the Buddha replies that he is now, in fact, a Buddha. His name is Amitabha or Amitayas, two names, same Buddha. And that he lives in his Buddha field in the West called Sukhavati. So he tells him that. Now, that is very important. It's very important Ananda asks him that question and that the Buddha answers it because it comes back to this vow. May I not attain unsurpassed perfect awakening if, when I have attained awakening, any of the living beings who are born in my Buddha field are not of a single colour, the colour of gold. Too many negatives there, aren't they? Double negatives. But basically, what this means is the fact that he is a Buddha means that that vow has come true. He couldn't have become a Buddha if that vow didn't come true. Yeah? May I not attain awakening if, when I've attained awakening, beings in my land aren't the colour of gold. Do you get that? It's a bit, I know it's a bit complicated, but when you've been writing a book about these things, it becomes very clear. So the vows have been fulfilled. So what does all this mean, though? It's a bit strange, isn't it? Um, so there was a few years until a few years ago a, a very extraordinary man called John Hick living in Birmingham. Anybody heard of John Hick? John Hick was—he died just a few years ago—was a philosopher of religion and himself a committed Christian. And uh, he came up with this very, very good idea about. Um, judging uh, religious experiences, spiritual experiences. So let's say I come up to you and I say, I've just seen Amitabha and I've been talking to him and I asked him a question and he answered me. Let's say I said that to you. And you, you could have maybe three responses. One would be, oh, come on. There is no such being as Amitabha. And if there was, he, he wasn't talking to you because he lives like millions of galaxies away in the west so you must be mistaken you must have been some kind of hallucination that's one response another response is really wow what did he say wow what did he look like that's amazing fantastic and another response is wow that's interesting i wonder what happened there these basically are three probable responses that you'll get if you say something like that the first one is called the non-realist interpretation. So the non-realist interpretation is the um, is you don't think that really happened. Yeah, I've just been talking to Amitabha and he gave me this teaching. If you were a non-realist, you just wouldn't believe it. You'd just say, "I oh, come on, that didn't happen. It must have been a hallucination." The naive realist would take it all as real as literal 
that that really did happen, just as you said it did. There really was this person called Amitabha come all the way from Sukhavati and spoke to you. That's the naive realist interpretation. Then the third one is the critical realist interpretation. And the critical realist interpretation believes that something really did happen. There really was a spiritual experience, but doesn't necessarily believe it as you've said it. There's a certain critical element to it. So I'm a critical realist, which means that I don't actually believe that there is a Buddha called Amitabha living millions of galaxies away in the West in a place called Sukhavati that he created. I cannot believe that that's the case, literally speaking. I wonder if there's anybody here who can believe that. Does anybody really believe in Buddhas, celestial Buddhas around the place? Real living beings, one, two. Okay, good. Right. It's a pity he called that naive realism because it's slightly derogatory, isn't it? I don't think he meant it to be derogatory, but let's just call it realism. Yeah, we'll call that realism. You believe that that is really the case. Are there any non-realists here who just don't believe there's any value in that at all, that Amitabha came to see me? That's good to know, isn't it, in a Buddhist centre? And what about critical realists? Are there anybody here who thinks there's something that happened, something important, very significant, but maybe not that this person, Amitabha, came to see you? Yeah, okay. And then there's, there's maybe a few of you who haven't put your hands up, so there must be another way of doing it. So I'm a critical realist, so as I'm reading through these books, I'm often thinking, what does that really mean? For instance, in Sukhavati... The birds sing the Dharma. They teach the Dharma to people. So, you know, you get geese and uh, blackbirds. And they're actually, what they're tweeting and quacking is the Dharma. And uh, I just can't really believe that that is an actual fact that happens. So, I, you know, as I was writing, what does that actually mean? Birds quacking the Dharma. So that's what I've been up to. So I've been thinking for quite a long time about now about the mythic history of Sukhavati and Sukhavati itself. What does all that mean? This person millions of aeons ago taking the Bodhisattva vow and creating this place called Sukhavati and people living there. What does all that mean? Okay. So I'm going to go back to the Buddha, uh, but way back to the Pali texts. And there's a text which I've often spoken about. You you may have heard me speaking about this before anyway. But anyway, I'm going to talk about it this evening. It's called the Chaitana Sutta. Chaitana means something like will or thought. Chaitana Sutta. And in that, uh, it's a kind of spiral path leading from where we are now to enlightenment. It's... It's like a path, but it's not a path in terms of practice so much as a path in terms of what it feels like when you're practicing and you're making progress towards enlightenment. So kind of an inner journey. And it begins with virtue, sila, which leads to freedom from remorse, or as we might say, a clear conscience. And that leads to joy. And joy leads to rapture or ecstasy. And that leads to serenity, 
calm, which leads to samadhi, absorption, deep kind of um, uh, concentration and absorption. And that samadhi leads to seeing things as they really are, insight. And that leads to disenchantment, and that leads to dispassion, and that leads to knowledge and vision of liberation. In other words, enlightenment. So those are the 11 or 12 steps. You've probably heard a similar one, but it begins with faith. Uh, dukkha, uh, suffering, leads to faith, leads to joy, etc., etc. But So the first two of these are different and they're quite interesting. Instead of suffering and faith, you've got virtue and freedom from remorse, leading to joy. So the Buddha talks about this, but then he goes through everything, each one of these steps, and he says something very interesting. He says, for the first one, for a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is, a na- it is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. So I'll just go through this again. For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will or for the thought, may freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things, dhammata, Sometimes uh, some translators just say it's natural, dhammatar. It's in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in the person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. In other words, if you're ethical, you'll enjoy a clear conscience. And you don't, you know, once you're ethical, you don't have to then think, oh, may I now have a clear conscience? Now that I've been really virtuous, may I now have a clear conscience? Or you don't have to try to get into that mental state because you're in it because you've been so virtuous. It happens naturally to you, as it were. Do you get it? And then he goes through each one of these steps. For instance, the second one. uh, For a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. That happens naturally. Yeah? So... If you've got a clear conscience, uh, if you're virtuous, you'll have a clear conscience, you'll be free from remorse. And if you're free from remorse, you'll be happy. And so on and so on. So the word here is dhammata, which, as I say, here it's translated as it's in the nature of things, but some translators just say it's natural. Hence the title of this talk, Naturalness. So, what this means is no act of will, chaitana, is needed to go from one stage to the next in the spiritual life. Life, We don't have to try to make it happen. It's natural. It happens of its own accord. It is in the nature of things. It's dhammata. This doesn't mean that we, ha- we can dispense with effort. Effort is involved. Notice that the practitioner moves from one state to the next only when that previous stage is developed to the point of almost perfection. Yeah, very, very developed. It is in the nature of things 
that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. Not just a little bit virtuous, but consummate. Uh, the word consummate, I thought I'd put this, yeah, here we are, tran- is, um, translates sampanar, which means successful, complete or perfect. So freedom from remorse only arises once you've really, really worked on your ethics. So what we have to do is really work on our ethics, work hard on that. That takes effort. It's where that stage leads you naturally next that doesn't take any effort. Developing and consolidating one particular stage of the path does take great effort. And only then does the next stage arise naturally. And it may not arise very soon. It may take some time to arise. If we take the example of the second stage in the series, we can see why this is so. Freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. You can imagine how long it would take us. Well, I don't know. You might be there already, but it probably took you a long time to get there to become consummate in virtue. You know, it takes a lot of effort, doesn't it? Working on yourself, noticing what you're doing and restraining yourself from things that would not be so virtuous. That takes a long time to do that, doesn't it? But having done it, there's no more you need to do. The path takes care of itself. You become free from remorse as a result of etc. Yeah. So in a way, the Buddha isn't saying anything very remarkable here, is he? Well, in the same principle works in many ordinary everyday situations. If we eat a lot of the wrong kind of food, for instance, you know, those foods that we've always been told we shouldn't be eating and there's always these new scientific um, results that come out and say, really, you shouldn't be eating that, you know, it causes obesity, you know, all those foods. Well, you know that if you eat those kind of foods, you tend to get a little bit fatter, yeah? So it's in the nature of things that we'll put on weight, yeah? If I eat those kind of foods, it's in the nature of things, dhammatar, that I'll put on weight. There's no need for an act of will, may I put on weight as a result of eating these foods. It just happens to us, doesn't it? Similarly, if you wanted to plant a flower, and you put the seed into the ground and watered it and so on. Your work's done now, isn't it? You don't have now to think, now may that seed sprout and become a flower. I mean, you can wish that as well, but it'll probably do that without you wishing it. It's just in the nature of things. If you put a seed into the earth and it's watered and so on, and there's sunlight, then that will sprout as a flower. It's in the nature of things, dhammata. So in a way, the Buddha's not saying anything very extraordinary. But what is remarkable, I think, about this is that he's observed that this natural process happens in the mind. Specifically with regard to skillful mental states. He noticed that if we develop a skillful mental state or a positive state of mind fully, If we develop it fully, it becomes something else. That's the remarkable thing. 
He didn't just notice that if you work on it, you'll get there. He noticed that if you get there, you get somewhere else as well. It becomes something other. So there's a kind of transformative element to our work. We develop one thing, but that transforms itself into something else without our having to do anything about it. This is, I think, really remarkable. It's a bit like the three stages of the Kasana meditation I was talking about last week. So we'll just quickly review that now. So Kasana meditations are when you look at something, close your eyes and visualise it. Yeah. So let's say you were looking at that blue background there. That's one of the Kasanas, actually, blue, the colour blue. First stage, you look at something blue. So you just look at that. And that would be your meditation for a while. You look at the blue. Then you close your eyes and you try to visualise that blue. And of course, at first, it comes and goes and it's quite weak and I can't see anything. Let's look again and you try again. But if you keep doing it, apparently, according to the Buddha, the third thing happens. So the first stage is the preparatory image, looking at the image itself, the physical image. Closing your eyes and trying to see it is the acquired image. Then, then comes the counterpart image. Now, the counterpart image happens to you. Suddenly, it becomes very, very clear and vivid and bright, as bright and vivid as if you were looking at it with your eyes. The first two stages are you making an effort. The third stage happens to you. You can't make it happen. And you might remember that I was saying last week that Buddha Gosha writes about this. The counterpart image appears as if breaking out from the acquired image. And a hundred times, a thousand times more purified, like a looking glass disc drawn from its case. Like a mother of pearl dish, well washed. Like the moon's disc coming out from behind a cloud. Like cranes against a thundercloud. Is that brilliant? Like cranes, the birds' cranes, not the cranes we've got here. Coming out from... So it happens to you like this. It breaks out of what you've been trying to do. And you are not in control of it. You are now not in control of what happens. It is happening to you. But it's happening to you as a result of the work that you've put in so far. So it seems, from what we've looked at so far, it seems that the spiritual life is a process of skillful effort followed by involuntary positive effect. More specifically, skillful effort leading to involuntary positive effect. Then, more skillful effort to intensify and deepen that positive effect leading to a new positive effect, and so on, and so on, and so on. Augmenting, augmenting, augmenting. Now, here's a question. Why should it be in the nature of things that the succeeding stage in the Buddha's sequence arises naturally from the preceding one? Why should that happen? Why, for instance, should serenity uh, come from rapture? Let's say you're really, really happy. According to the Buddha, if you really focus on that happiness and be, be happy, then that naturally leads to serenity. So the happiness transforms into something else. Why? Why should that be? 
Well, the Buddha didn't concern himself with the why questions. He didn't ask that question. He just saw that that was the case. He observed something happening and he told us about it. He didn't stop to think, why does it happen? So we don't actually know why it happens. They just do. And that's really all we need to know, isn't it? But then another question arises. Um, how do we know that what the Buddha says in that, in that teaching is correct? How, how do we know? Well, there's only one way to find out, isn't there? Do it. That's the only way we can verify the Buddha's teachings. We have to retrace his steps. We have to do it ourselves. We have to become consummate in virtue and see what happens. Yeah? That's our task, isn't it? So, at one point in that path, something really, really important happens. Something really crucial happens. Don't know if you know about this. But um, let's see, where are we? So, after absorption, so you get to that stage of absorption, concentration, samadhi. And out of that, seeing the nature of things, out of that insight arises. Knowing and seeing things as they really are. That is the crucial stage here because once insight has arisen well let's say before insight has arisen you could be right up there very very deeply concentrated in samadhi and you might be really good at doing that you might have hours and hours and months and years of practicing in meditation retreats and getting this lovely state of samadhi you can always fall back right back in, right back through all the stages, right back even to before virtue, and you can become unvirtuous all over again. There's always the danger of falling back. But from the next one, knowing and seeing things as they really are, you cannot fall back from the path to enlightenment. So it's a crucial stage. You become irreversible from awakening. Now, not only are you irreversible, so traditionally, you, you at that point become a stream entrant. You enter the stream which leads you to awakening. And what the Buddha said is, within seven lifetimes, or at the most seven lifetimes, you will become fully enlightened. So it's only a matter of time now. So what this means is that not only can you not fall back, but you can't help but move forwards. You can't help it. Because it's going to happen in seven lifetimes. No matter what you do, it will happen. So now you're inexorably moving towards enlightenment. Why does it take seven lifetimes? Because there are different kinds of stream entrants. Uh, one of them is the indolent stream entrant. And the indolent stream entrant takes his or her time. It's no hurry. Let's enjoy ourselves on the way. But you could gain enlightenment in this lifetime. So this is interesting. You've now reached a stage at which not only you can't fall back, but you can't help but move forward towards enlightenment. Why? Why can you not help but move towards enlightenment? Well, there are a number of possible explanations. There's the usual um, uh, psychological explanation, which is now you've seen so clearly the nature of things that you cannot become uh, confused again. 
you've, you're now so clear you can't go back to your old confused state of mind. It's a bit like toys. You know, do you remember your toys as a child? And at a certain point you grew out of them, didn't you? You don't want to play with those toys anymore. You'd be embarrassed to see, for other people to see you play with those toys. So you let them go. And that's a natural process, isn't it? And then when you become an adult, there's no question of you playing with toys. Or is there? Probably not. You, you know, even if you did for a little while, you get bored quite quickly. So you don't really want to go back and be a child playing with toys again. It's natural. So you become irreversible from adulthood. You cannot fall back into childhood again. So it's similar to that. Um, our teacher, Sangaraksha, talks about... Um, he uses the analogy of a space rocket. You know, at first, it's the, the, the jet engines are pushing against a very strong tug of gravity, aren't they? So really pushing against it. And then it goes beyond gravity. And now it's completely free. So it's as if that's what we need to do in our spiritual lives. We have to work, work, work with the gravitational pull, as it were, pulling us back, pulling us back, until we get to the point where we've seen so much of reality that we just don't want to go back to the old way. of We just don't want to. So you could see it in volitional terms. You just don't want to be the way you used to be anymore. You're so much more enjoying this. An awakening seems so much more attractive than anything at all in the world. So that's another way of putting it. But there's another way of putting it, which I'm looking for in my notes. And I cannot find it anywhere, but I know... Could I have missed out a page? Oh no, here we are. Um, so, this brings me back to this fairy tale of Dharmakura making those vows all that time ago, saying, may I not obtain awakening unless this happens. So, whereas the Buddha in the Chaitanya Sutta just said, it just happens that way, it's natural. It's in the nature of things, that if you do this, this will occur. That's it. What the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras do is they say the same thing, but in a myth. So Dharmakara lived you know, so far away, so long, long ago, that we can't imagine, so it's outside of time. So deep in the structure of existence is this fact that positive mental events, if you work on them, transform themselves into something even better. But that transformation is outside of your control. So this is interesting. You work at the spiritual life, you make effort. But you make effort to get to a point where it happens to you. This is where we're trying to get to. And you could say that that crucial point between absorption and knowing and seeing things as they really are, insight into the truth, is this process writ large. The process of skillful effort leading you all the way to absorption, but then from absorption to knowing things, seeing things as they really are, is outside of your control. 
it happens to you. The Pure Land tradition is all about this process. So in the, what century was it? Fifth, sixth century, there was this Chinese man called Tan Wan. And he was the first person to come up with this idea of self-power and other power. Something like 500 uh, in the common era. Self-power and other power. Or self-help and outside help. What he said was that you can only do so much as a spiritual practitioner. At a certain point, you have to let go. You have to let Amitabha take you. And in the second part of the Shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, the Buddha, talking to Shariputra this time, he's talking about all these Buddhas all over the universe. He mentions 34 of them by name, and they've all different parts of the universe with their own Buddha fields. And he says, um, you have to trust them. And you have to allow yourself to be embraced by them. And he said, you could call this sutra, instead of calling it the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, you could call it, if you wanted to, embraced by all the Buddhas. So what does that mean, being embraced by all the Buddhas? So as a critical realist, I don't, you know, take it literally that a Buddha will embrace me, but there is truth there. What is the truth? And I think the truth behind that phrase is that you can only do so much in the spiritual life. You make effort, you make effort, you make effort, but then you have to allow the involuntary positive result to happen to you. You have to let go of control. So the Pure Land Sutras are another way of saying that the Dharma really works. It's embedded in our DNA in a way. It just, it's natural. It really works. So what is other power? Our own teacher, Sangraksha, has talked in different terms about this. He's called it the supra-personal force. It's the Dharma. It's the eternal Dharma, which we have to somehow tune into. So other power, it's, that's how it's come down to us in English, other power and self-power. And it's slightly misleading. I like this other translation, self, self-help and outside help. It's a bit, I think this idea of power is a bit odd, isn't it? And other. Who is the other? What is the other? The other in other power is not other as opposed to yourself. It's not that you are here making an effort and there's somebody out there trying to pull you towards enlightenment. It's not as simple as that. It's not that there really is a being out there trying to help you gain enlightenment. It's not other as opposed to the self. It's other as opposed to to the self-other dichotomy. Because that's the way we see things, isn't it? That's the way we experience the world. There's me and there's you. I'm doing this. I'm going to go over there now. I'll see you later. So there's me and there's you. And they're, as it were, opposed. It's, it's a bit like I'm looking at all of you now and you're looking at me. So we're like, like looking in opposite directions. And I'm me and you're you. And I can do what I want. I can stop this talk any moment. And if you wanted to, you could get up and walk out any moment. 
So we're the masters of own destinies in a way, aren't we? But what Buddhism says is it doesn't, it's not really like that. That's a misperception of what's actually happening. The very way we structure our perception of self and other, and every, everything is other that we don't have any control over. Yeah, so this is other to me because I can't really do anything with it. So that's other and this is self. This is a misperception according to the Buddha. So other power is not an other thing out there. You're involved in it. But it's, you could say, consciousness without self or other. So other power is, self, is consciousness without self or other, outside of that duality. It's consciousness outside of the duality of self and other. And this is what the whole myth, the mythic history of Sukhavati really means. That if you practice, you will definitely get results. Not only will you definitely get the results you are looking for and hoping for, you'll get much more. You'll find that when you try to have a clear conscience, once you get there, it naturally transforms into joy. And if you're aiming for happiness, once you get there, it naturally transforms into serenity. And once you get there, that naturally transforms into deep absorption. You're not doing this. It's happening to you. And once you get to absorption, it naturally transforms into seeing things as they really are. And that naturally transforms into disenchantment. This is a lovely word, isn't it? You become disenchanted with every, anything that the world can offer you. And that naturally transforms into dispassion. It's a funny word, dispassion. Uh, but it, what it really means is that you, you're not really after anything anymore. You're not really after the things in the world anymore. And that dispassion naturally transforms into complete and utter freedom. And all we have to do is open up to it. Very simple.